listening to a podcast of Elam Lutheran Church in Osakis, Minnesota. Our passion is to be an oasis of life-giving water where lost and wandering souls can find eternal refreshment. For more information and to find out more about our ministries, please visit osakiselamchurch.com. Or if you're in the area, come visit us in person. Well, today we're continuing our sermon series on 1 John. We're going to be in chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. So I invite you to turn there with me now if you brought your Bibles. 1 John 4, verses 7 through 12. I'll be reading out of the ESV, and if you don't have it, that's all right. It will be displayed on the screen here. Let's rise this morning for the reading of God's Word. First John 4, beginning at verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. Let's pray. God, I pray this morning that the words of my mouth And the meditations of all of our hearts here would be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. The three most powerful words in the English language, I love you. How often do you say them? How often do you hear them? How readily do you believe them. I love you. This phrase is like a beacon drawing us, attracting us, pulling us in. If romantic comedies have taught us anything, and I don't believe they have taught us much, but they have taught us this one thing. We all, in some way, shape, or form, want to hear these words spoken to us. I love you you. It's a deeply human need. Ernest Hemingway wrote a short story about a father and his teenage son. And in this story, the son had sinned greatly against the father, and in his shame, he had fled away from his father. And finally, in Madrid, Spain, the father put an ad in the local newspaper and The ad was really short, very to the point. It just read, Dear Paco, meet me at the Hotel Montana at noon on Tuesday. All is forgiven. Papa. The next day, as the father approached the newspaper office, he couldn't believe his eyes. A crowd had gathered, 800 people in all, all named Paco, all seeking forgiveness all desperately craving the love of their father. You are forgiven. 
you are loved. These words elicit something within us that nothing else can, penetrating to the deepest, darkest, loneliest places of our hearts, touching a nerve that perhaps we didn't even know was there in the first place. Switching gears for a moment, I'll ask you a a question, kind of a pop quiz here. God is blank. Fill in that blank for me. If you said God is blank, how would you respond to that question? If we were to do a survey and the streets of Osegas, ask a hundred random people, God is blank, fill in this, this word. You're going to get all sorts of responses. People have a lot of preconceptions and ideas about who God is and, and his character and, and all that. If you were to ask an, an atheist or an agnostic, they would probably say something along the lines of, well, God is non-existent. God is a disappointment. God is, is petty. If you're a Christian under the authority of God's Word, like myself, you're going to say something along the lines of God is holy, God is righteous, God is powerful, God is sovereign, God is just. But what about God is love? Where would that fall on your list? It's precisely what John tells us in our text this morning. Here is verse 8 one more time. He says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. God is love. What is He? Well, that's what He is, which is very different from saying that God loves or that God performs acts of love or that God is full of love. God is love goes beyond that because now we're not just talking about what God does, but in fact who He is at His very core and His heart of hearts, God is love. It's more than just another attribute or a description of His nature. It's what motivates all of His thoughts and actions. God is love. Now, quick disclaimer here, God is love, looks great on bumper stickers and yard signs, and unfortunately it's been co-opted and twisted to mean something like, because God is love, we're all free to do whatever we please, embracing and accepting and celebrating every type of human behavior as if God didn't care how we lived. God loves you and you're perfect just the way you are, you don't need to change a thing. But in his letter, if we've been following along and if we've been paying attention to what he's said thus far, nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, that attitude would be the most unloving thing God could possibly do. See, love means that God cares enough about us to give us instructions on how to live what we should and shouldn't do, what what kind of things are going to help us flourish the way He intended, which sort of things are going to do us harm. Listen to what He's already said. This is just a sampling. You'll see many, many more of of these and similar if if you read through everything up to chapter 4. Chapter 1, verse 6 says, If we say we have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you 
may not sin. And then chapter 3, verse 6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. So let's be clear here. Love and obedience are not mutually exclusive categories. God loves us and therefore gives us commandments and calls us to obedience. It's not foreign, but actually in line with his, his love. Love does not mean license, would be maybe another way to say this. Back to our, our main road here. God is love. Today we're going to talk about three different aspects of this love. We're going to talk about the origin of love. We're going to talk about the magnitude of love, and we're going to talk about the results of love. Those are very briefly the three kind of points. If you're like a, a big, big picture person who likes to have a roadmap of where we're, we're headed, that's where we're going. So let's talk about the origin of, of love. What are we talking about with an origin? Well, if you're in a math class, you know you've got your x-axis, your y-axis, where the two of those intersect. That's called your origin, right? It, it's just the, the starting point. So the origin story of Spider-Man is Peter Parker, right, getting bit by a radioactive spider. That's where it all began. The origin story of Superman is Clark Kent, right, the, the, the newspaper reporter. So when we're speaking about the origin of love, we're really just asking the question, where did it start, right? Where did love start? And our text here is abundantly clear. Love starts in the heart of God. He loved us first. In fact, John, he goes to great lengths to emphasize this. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. Now, you're a Christian. You've been in church before. You've heard this. You kind of nod your head and you're like, well, yeah, that makes sense. But it really doesn't. <laughs> in fact, it's incredibly counterintuitive countercultural and cuts against the grain of human thinking. What am I talking about? Now think of it like this. Imagine someone that you love very dearly, maybe a family member, maybe a spouse, maybe a, a significant other or a friend. You picture that person in your mind. You got it? You're thinking of Sheldon, right? Good answer. Okay. This is a danger when you sit towards the front, I guess. So you picture this person in your mind. Why do you love them? How did that love start? I'll use myself as an example. My wife, Bethany. Why is it that I love her? Well, there's a number of different reasons I could give in response to that. But I remember when we were first dating, as we were driving along in the car, at one point it became abundantly clear to me, she's a nurse, and when you're a nurse, you're always a nurse, is what I hear. It, that, that gene just doesn't leave you. But she has an incredible ability to empathize with people. She has an incredible amount of compassion for people who are hurting. And when I saw that, there was some spark, some something that drew me to that, and I was like, you know what? This could be something that goes the distance. <clears throat> now, every human relationship on some level, works that way. Think of a, a good friend, someone you would call maybe your best friend. Why are they your friend? What, what is it that, that brings the two of you together? Well, there's usually some quality that that person has 
that drew you to them, right? Maybe you have a shared interest. Maybe it's that they're, they're just really, really loyal. Maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe they have a great sense of humor or they're outgoing and you're not. Whatever it is, there's something about them that drew you, that draws you in their direction, right? This is just human relationships one-on-one. Here's the thing. That's not how God's love works. There isn't some attractive quality in us that draws or elicits His love. He doesn't love us because we're good people or faithful church attenders or spiritually disciplined as if His love is a response to some quality that we possess. See, God's love is fundamentally different. It starts with Him in His heart. He loves first. He makes the first move. He loves us not because we are particularly lovable, but because God is love. In fact, it's our very unlovability that motivated Him to act in the first place. Romans 5.8 says, but God shows His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Our messiness, not our holiness, is the very thing that causes God to act on our behalf. Love starts with God. So that's the origin. Let's talk about the magnitude of love. What are we talking about with magnitude? Well, you think of a a wave in the ocean. The the amplitude of that wave, the crest, the height of the crest, we're talking about how large something is, essentially. So when we speak of the the magnitude of an earthquake, we're measuring it on a Richter scale, right? You apply a specific number to it. When we're talking about the magnitude of a tsunami, we're we're checking the tide gauges and and measuring it, it that way. When we speak of the magnitude of God's love, that is measured at the cross. The magnitude of God's love is most fully displayed at the cross. John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. The cross shows us the full extent and depths of His love where He made the greatest sacrifice, shedding His own blood to rescue us from sin, death, and Satan. All of our worth and value and identity then is staked not on our own efforts, but on those of Jesus, which we receive by faith. I don't know if you've noticed this, but We as human beings, we really like to measure things and compare them, whether it's how tall we are, how far we can throw, how fast we can drive, how big our truck is, how much snow we can blow. Yes, look that up. Snow blowing racing is an actual thing. It's worth watching a video or two, just saying. Um, The same is true of our worth and our value, and we have many ways of of doing this, of of measuring our worth or our value. Your value to the company is measured by your profit margin. Your value as a student is measured by your test scores in your report cards, yeah? 
My value as a pastor is measured by how many people fall asleep during my sermons. Doing all right so far. I'm batting a thousand. All right. But as a Christian, that is not why I'm valuable. That's not where my worth comes from. And sometimes we have to learn this the hard way. Michelangelo, the great Renaissance painter, is known for his statue of David and the incredible Sistine Chapel. But what many don't know is that Michelangelo lived during the time of the Reformation when it was sweeping through Europe, and he was influenced greatly by many reformational ideas, particularly justification by grace through faith. According to one source, Michelangelo was plagued throughout his own life by his own and others' high demands for his artwork, right? He sets the bar pretty high and, and continually felt the need to, to outdo himself. But as he approached his own death, a spiritual rebirth began to occur. One of his final works, which you'll see on the screen here, intended to be his gravestone, actually, was a statue of himself in the guise of Nicodemus, the one who was born again in John 3 holding the dead body of Jesus. You can see the statue at the Duomo Museum in Florence, Italy, where there's, right next to it, there's a, or maybe across from it, there's a poem written by Michelangelo, and it's printed. And, and in this poem, Michelangelo describes coming to the end of his life and seeing that his artwork was actually harmful to his soul because it became, in his own words, my idol and my king. Isn't that fascinating? One of the greatest sculptors of all time coming to see that his own efforts actually became idolatrous. At the end of the day, his only hope was not in being a great artist or receiving acclaim from others, but rather, as his poem says, in the divine love who, to embrace us, opened his arms upon the cross. That's the magnitude of God's love for us. So we talked about the origin. We talked about the magnitude. What about the results of love? Well, the results of His love are this. It says in verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now, as I was studying this text this week, I found it really, this verse in particular, really grabbed my attention. Because it didn't say what I thought it was going to say. I thought it was going to say something like, if God so loved us, we also ought to love Him. Right? God loves us, we love Him in, in return. But, but that's not what it says. It says, because God loved us, we ought to love one another. He's not just talking about human beings in general, although that is... Certainly true, but he's, he's speaking specifically of Christians here. He's talking to the church. Now, to be clear, we are commanded to love God, but, and this is important, it's not because God needs our love in return. God doesn't need anything. To say God needs implies that He lacks something, or that he's somehow incomplete or deficient. God doesn't need anything from us. But our neighbors sure do. 
That person sitting in the pew next to you needs to know that you love them. This is how God's love works. The vertical love we receive from God spills over into horizontal love for fellow believers in Christ. In the same way that He loved us, which is to say by laying aside His own interests and humbling Himself and prioritizing our good, that's how Christians are called to live. Sometimes that person in the pew needs to hear those words directly. Other times, you need to, they need to see it by your actions. But always they need to know it by your presence. A presence which doesn't see them according to their quirks and foibles and flaws and past actions, but according to them being made in the image of God. This is someone for whom Christ died. As Jesus tells his disciples in John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Our love for each other is the evidence, is the witness, is the testimony that we have been transformed by God. It is the, the evidence of his presence. I love you. Three most powerful words in the English language. God speaks those very words to you today, too. Did you know that? Jesus loves you. He loves you as you are, broken, sinful, messy, in all of your unvarnished, uncropped, unfiltered mess. He loves you on your good days. He loves you on your bad days. He loves you on the days when you feel like you've got it all together. He, he loves you on the days when it seems like everything is falling apart and you are just, man, white-knuckling your way through life. His love doesn't fluctuate because God doesn't change. And He offers us rest for our sin-weary souls, peace with God, forgiveness, and eternal life. God is love. If you remember anything at all from our message today, remember that. Those three simple words that change absolutely everything. I'm going to end this morning by playing a video clip. It's an animation, about six minutes long. It's from a pastor, theologian, and artist named Chris Powers. And he puts together all sorts of these and similar visual representations of biblical truth. And I love this, this, this video because it ties together the birth and the death of Christ and the love of God in, in a beautiful way, bringing it all to unity. Laying out the whole gospel story. It's an artist's rendition, so you're going to see a lot of biblical imagery here. Some things you're going to understand right away. Other things, maybe not so much. But as we watch, I want to encourage you to reflect on God's love its origin, its magnitude, its results. And my prayer is that you would walk away this morning knowing and believing that when God says, I love you, 
He is speaking to you too. Hey friends, Pastor Luke here. Thanks so much for tuning in. I trust that you've been blessed by our message from God's word today. Hey, we'd love to connect with you more. If you have comments or questions, you can email me directly at pastorchellog at gmail.com. That's Pastor K-J-O-L-H-A-U-G at gmail.com. As we wrap up our time together today, please receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace. Amen. Amen.